Welcome to the Playbook for Results, getting a grip on growing your business podcast. If you're looking for coaching and content proven to get you and your team to the top of their game, you've come to the right place. Grab your team or huddle with them after the podcast and get ready for your host and his invited guests to get you out of your comfort zone and into the growth zone. And now, here is your host, Edward Preston, VP of Revenue Creation, and Cesar Cavadoy, CEO of Playbook for Results. All right, get ready to be informed and transformed by your virtual coaching and value creation specialists as they set the stage for you to perform at the top of your game. Greetings to all in the land of chaos and opportunity. My name is Edward Preston. My friends call me EP, which means you can call me your friend of knowledge for the next hour. Today's show promises to deliver some stimulating ideas, tools, and tips that we will put on the table for sales leaders and individual contributing sales professionals. There is only one requirement that we ask from you, the listener, and that is for you to listen in if you have the desire to rise to the top of your game. Simple enough, right? So now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, crank up the Dolby surround sound on your soundbar, car radio, or AirPods, and join me on this journey that we call getting a grip on growing your business. Allow me to introduce to you two gentlemen that are gonna be cruising down the boulevard with me today. The man riding shotgun with me today is Mr. Caesar, the czar of sales, Cavadoy. Caesar, good day, sir. Hey, good to see you and good to be here and also good to have a great guest. I'm excited. Indeed, very excited to introduce our guest today. This is a man that's conquered the highest mountaintops that sales has to offer within its tallest peaks. A man that has not only studied psychology, speed reading, and psychometrics. He is the CEO <laughs> owner of Praxis Performance Group, a sales leadership and performance development corporation. His name is Craig Sabin. Craig, what is going on, my man? Hey, EP, Caesar. great to be with you, gentlemen. Looking forward to our time together. Hey, I'm looking forward to finding out what psychometrics is all about. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Interesting, interesting topic. Definitely get you talking about that. And listen, between the two of you guys, and even including myself, lots of stories that can be told, lots of gold nuggets that I know that our listeners are gonna grab today. So let me set the table and let's uh, get the focus as far as what we're gonna try to stay mainstream on. Something tells me we might go left, we might go right a little bit, but I'll try to keep us on track the best that I can. Ask yourself this question. Do you use, promote, exercise, engage, and or advocate a world of best practices or a world of best in class? This is the million dollar question that hungry, thirsty, passionate sales leaders and sales professionals need to be asking themselves right now. And who better to answer this question? Let me toss this one over to Caesar to get us started. Caesar, best practices versus best in class. Lots of people have an idea of what it takes to build a great sales organization. Let's make sure that we're hitting these benchmarks, doing these things, classified things. How would you like to answer that in terms of trying to make that determination, which is better than the other? Main difference is best practices versus best in class. One is informative, it's what everyone is doing, versus one is transformative. It's not to say that there aren't elements of transformation that happen with some of these best practices. Here's kind of how I look at it. If everyone is following the same methodology, if everyone's following a best practice, then especially when it comes to sales or wanting to differentiate your business, how are you gonna do that if everyone's doing the exact same thing? Yeah, good point. I mean, uh, Craig, why don't you take this one? You've got somebody that steps in front of you, whether it's knocking on your door, 
trying to sell you the LA Times or the New York Times or whatever Times it is in your backyard, yeah. or it's somebody calling you and trying to sell you a timeshare or a vacation. I know right now I'm actually getting solicitations left and right from all the major uh, hotels that I uh, actually have an affiliation with, Marriott, yeah. for an example. You get that phone call, and I don't know about you guys, but Craig, I don't know what, five, 10 seconds in, you're recognizing a pattern that is same old, same old, right? So you take that one. What's your take on that? So so the interesting part of, of this transformational process is I look at I look at the sales methodology and sales approach broken up into two specific areas. One area would be the science, right? The, the best practices, if you will, things that, you know, are the absolutes, things you have to do, listen well, ask thought provoking questions, so forth and so on. And then there's this concept called art. Art is the ability to connect with another human being pretty quickly in sales and some of the examples you gave. So when, when I, you know, you get those calls, is it, is it, is he counting calls or is he or she making calls count? So the ability to, hey, did they do some prep before they even picked up the phone? Did they, are they even pronouncing my name correctly? Are they, is it Sabin or Saban? You know, things of that, that sort. Do they know um, what, what's happening with COAD in my industry? Have they shared any insight on that? Those, are, those ability or that ability to connect with another human being on the phone or in person as quickly as, as possible, that's like beyond best practice, right? Th those are the people that get to that top of that game. And it'll be interesting to talk further on how we talk about that. You know, the, the thing is involving first, get them involved first, then inform, then inspired, and then some sort of action. So when we work with clients, that's enable, enabling that performance in what we do. We enable and we inspire that greater performance so that they can do that more quickly. I like that little nugget you just threw out there in terms of is this person counting or making the phone call or meeting count? That's so, that's, that's so point on point. I love that. Um, let's turn to scalability, guys. Uh, Cesar, I'm going to throw this one back to you. Let's look at best practices because I think a lot of people right now are saying, well, wow. You know, I really never thought of it from that point of view. I'm applying best practices. Yes, I want to rise to the top of my game, but have people really sat back and asked themselves, hey, is best practices a scalable process? Caesar, how would you answer that? Well, it is because also you got to look at best practices versus best in class has to do with a mindset. From my perspective, sure. if you look at things like hey, we can look at what the average performers are doing today or what the average business is doing. The example that I love to bring up is hard, crunchy cookies versus soft, chewy cookies. In the 1970s, the de facto best practice for cookie making was the Chips Ahoy. Right. Now, I wasn't allowed to eat that stuff. My mom didn't allow that in the pantry, but all my friends had it, and everyone was <laughs> all into the Chips Ahoy. Well, along comes this young entrepreneur who goes to a bank to try to get a loan to launch her cookie company, and the bankers basically said no, because no one wants a soft, chewy cookie. Well, that person ended up being Debbie Fields, and you look at the percentage of outlets out there that are making a mint with the soft, chewy cookie versus the hard, crunchy cookie, I don't have the numbers. And you know what 
no stats and facts guy, right? I don't have yeah. the stats and facts, but there's so many other examples of someone basically saying, I'm not gonna follow this herd mentality. I'm gonna go outside of what I believe is, should be the de facto standard and, and develop something new. And that was my point in the beginning. If everyone is following a best practice, and yet the goal and the objective of business is to differentiate your product or solution in such a way that people are going to see the inherent value and pay for the difference in price because of that value, then you can't really follow best practices in everything, especially when it comes to innovating. Look at Apple. If Apple had followed best practices, it would have released a six button mouse instead of a zero button mouse. Yeah. If Mini Cooper had followed best practices, they would have they would have released a Ford Escort versus what they ended up releasing. There's so many stories of what happens when you focus in on best in class. You're, you're really challenging the status quo. That's what best in class allows you to do versus best practices. Craig? Interesting. So if I could build on what Caesar talked about Apple, look what Steve Jobs and Wozniak did, if you know the Apple story. I mean, arguably, they changed the world. They, they certainly changed the way we communicate. And all they really did, if you really think about it, they really just brought stuff together. They didn't really create anything. For example, look what they did to the music industry. They totally turned it upside down. And the music industry was doing great, right? We had CDs. We, we were getting our music. Look what they did to telecom. I mean, we had mobile phones. We were able to communicate. So all essentially he, they did is they kind of put that stuff together. And arguably, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying they changed the way we communicate. They changed the world. They changed our paradigm of what's now expected. I mean, think about how how we view our phones. Like they're just part, they're, they're now an extension of us. Some people take that to an extreme. Maybe that's not so great, but it's the ability to demonstrate that that best in class, like taking a new idea and revolutionize the way people think about something. And like Caesar said, there's lots and lots and lots of examples of companies doing that all the time. And that in and of itself differentiates yourself. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that these are examples of companies that have disrupted the the norm. I mean, these are companies, I mean, what you guys have just laid out, these companies that you've used, uh, Caesar with the Chips Ahoy and Apple, guys, they've delivered what the market is asking for. In other yeah. words, isn't it fair to say this? That the next phone call you make, the next visit you have to go see a, a customer, listen, like what do they want you to ask? They want them, they want you to talk about them. They want you to ask them questions, right? So a lot of best practices, stuff is like written down. This is something I wanted to ask you guys. Like the, who, who's the author of the best practice book? Who, who wrote the book of best practice in sales? How, how do you know that all the best practices for quote unquote, some Skylar Johnson out there sells that sells like bass fishing boats versus Amy Kingston. I'm, I'm making these names up. Uh, that sells 3D printers. Here you have two salespeople and they're following best practices because that's what we got in HR. That's what the company gave us. These are the boxes that we checked. These are the videos that we watched. This is the book that we that we uh, that we read. And then they're just supposed to go out and be this robot. And and here you have a, a one hour call and you don't let the customer really start talking until 10 minutes in, 20 minutes in, how many questions are you asking? Like you really kind of have to ask yourself who wrote the book on best practices. So guys, who wrote it? Like what is it, where did best practices even come from? So it, it's, it's interesting you say that. It's the the idea of building a transactional based relationship instead of relationship based transaction. So look at the difference between um, consultative selling versus transactional selling. Transactional selling goes something like this. Say you're in a meeting with a client, it's going great, you're on the other side, the desk, you're going back and forth. He gets you, you get him. It's awesome. And then all of a sudden he goes, Hey, Craig, I have this 
problem. Like most transactional sales professionals, they'll jump on that like a fat kid on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they'll say, oh, okay, Mr. Customer, here's what we can do. Here's what we've done in the past. Here's why we're better. That's transactional. Consultative is a little different. Same scenario, other side of the desk, going back and forth, meeting, going good, you get him, he gets you. All of a sudden he goes, hey, Craig, I have this problem. Consultative sales professional goes, hmm, okay, Mr. Customer, if we were able to solve that problem, how would it help you? What would it mean to you? Who would have the most to win? Who would have the most to lose? What goal would that help you achieve? And, and you might say, well, Craig, that's just semantics. I am like, well, maybe, but psychologically, it's huge difference, right? Because right. on the consultative approach, I'm guiding the client to the answer, okay? And then as I do that, guess what? It becomes their answer. As it becomes their answer, they're more likely to do their answers as opposed to me telling them what to do. So the idea of being more insightful and more empowering by in, involving first, then informing, that's what I think. I, I think we were talking about transformation. I think that's how the industry of performance development is transfer, transforming too. It's no longer about like what Caesar and you were saying, it's about the, you know, the greatest widget, the best practice. Everybody's got, I mean, there's no, no, company has the market cornered on listening skills right. like you know you can google search listening skills you can learn how to listen really really well it's the ability to impart and impact and inspire um to get people to actually do it that's where you get best in class i love that and now i'm going to move on that's, that's great uh, great content you just provided there craig i'm going to move on and by the way Getting really hungry on this podcast, talking about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> and cookies. Yeah, I like right those now. cookies, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to. Go, I've got some coffee. I'm gonna have to go grab some milk here in a minute. Um, I'm gonna move over to you know two things. Start with C, Caesar, and the word conversion. Now, let me set this up for you, Caesar. Best practices versus best in class. Is it fair to say that the best practice selling system or philosophy is simply a benchmark? I mean, think about these sales leaders that say you got to make a thousand phone calls a day. You got to schedule 20 meetings a day. You need to be running 15 demos a day, uh, sending 200 emails a day. Maybe it's an individual, probably more like a sales team, sending out 40 quotes a day. These are the metrics that we need to be hitting to be hitting these best practice benchmarks. Caesar, the question is how important or how does the conversion tie into best in class and how important is that versus a best practice selling system. So uh, let me tie a couple concepts here together because you asked, well, who are the authors of these best practices versus best in class? Right. And one of the things that Craig just said that we said a little bit earlier, clear distinction between best practices and best in class. Best practices is a lot of information. Best in class is transformation. It's transformative. That's why I think it's a mindset. It's an attitude that says, I want to be differentiated in the marketplace. I want to be differentiated in my approach. I want to be different from anything that I do in comparison to anyone that I'm competing against. So you don't go into a system and not disrupt it if you want to be best in class. You absolutely will create that friction, right? Because it's that friction that lights that fire. And so when we start to look at how do we measure that, you've got to look at conversion, not just activity for activity's sake. And that's one of the things that distinguishes the sales coach from a sales manager. We have terms that we use at Playbook for Results. We say, for instance,
Robinson salesperson versus sales professional. That was a podcast a few weeks ago. We say there's sales managers versus sales leaders or sales coaches. A coach focuses in on conversion and they work on the stats and facts that will absolutely paint the right type of picture and focus that athlete, that professional, in the areas that's gonna get them to the top of their game. A sales manager, all they do is what we call count. They think sales is a numbers game. Sales is not a numbers game. Sales is a conversion game. They think sales is a rejection game. Sales should be a selection game. And when you look at conversion, that's what the best in class people do. You go back to the comment or the question that you asked, who's writing these best practices? If you look across history and you look at the all-time best-selling sales books, with the exception of one person who wrote a sales book, none of those other people that have written sales books over the last 30 years have ever made it into the corresponding list of top 10 sales professionals of all time. When you look at Inc. Magazine, Fortune Magazine, Success Magazine, all those magazines that tend to write from time to time articles on all these great people that they say are, in their mind, the best sales professionals ever. When you look at that top 10 list and they, they mention people like David Ogilvie, Mary Kay, the Fuller Brush Man, you, they sometimes even put Steve Jobs, like none of those people with the exception of one person, Zig Ziglar, who was actually in sales for quite a long time and did really, really well at it. Actually, he, he was terrible at it for the first couple of years. I forget the exact story. And then his manager pulls him aside and he goes, I'm disappointed because I expect so much more from you. You have a lot of potential and you're not using it. And from that moment on, he became an exceptional, best-in-class salesperson. Fast forward about 30 years, then he decides to write a book. But if you look at those best practices that have been pushed out there, written by people that have never, ever appeared with the exception of one, ever appeared on the list of top 10 greatest salespeople of all time. Here's the problem with those books. They're still not driving the types of results that we as sales leaders are looking for. Because if right. they were, you, you wouldn't have the data that we have today or the stats that we have today. You have more people disappointed in their vocations and their careers because of the earning potential. You have more people looking up at quota versus looking down at quota. You still have the same old numbers from 20 years ago or 30 years ago where 15 to 20% of your sales force is creating almost 80 percent of the profitable revenue. That tells me that all these best practices that have been peddled out there for the last 30 years are terrible. They're not really <laughs> making the impact. It's information, but it's not transformational. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about that when you were talking about Zig Ziglar and people that have uh, authored books. Listen, if like I like to cook I and mean, if I wanted to be a fantastic top of my game chef, well, I'm not going to go out and just buy like Wolf King Puck's cookbook and just think that I can cook his recipe. Well, it's right there. It says right there. Sprinkle of this, a pinch of that, eight ounces of this, right, Craig? I mean, yeah. listen, Craig, if you wrote a book, and actually forgive me because you've probably written 17 of them. <laughs> if Craig writes a book tonight and, and it goes to publishing in, by Christmas time, that'd be a nice stocking stuffer. Is that going to teach me how to get to the top of my game or do I need something more, guys? I'm talking about the secret sauce for success. True or false, Craig? Those that subscribe to the best in class philosophy include a I, continuous coaching element in their second system. I think where people fall short though is they they continue to they stop growing. They get complacent or comfortable. Because if you look at here's an example, Bruce Lee. I mean, there was just a big uh, 30 for 30 on ESPN, and it's amazing. Uh, it's been like 50 years, and we're still talking about Bruce Lee, and he only lived till about 32. Years. Years old, so he's done a lot in like literally ten years of his life. He did a lot. Best of his so, game. But, but if you look at best practices, yeah. um, to build on that for one second, 
is he started with Wing Chun. Wing Chun was his foundational martial arts, and he didn't even start studying martial arts till he was about 13. From that, though, he grew into creating his own art, Jeet Kune Do, which it stands for intercepting fist. So what he did is he developed best practices. He learned how to kick, punch, block via the original martial art, Wing Chun. And then based on that, he, he developed his art. So he learned the science, the basics, and then he developed his own art to create his own martial art. That's where I think the systemic best practices go wrong because it is not necessarily cookie cutter and, and um, paint by numbers, right? Because that'll only take you so far. You have to develop your approach, your ability to understand what I would call your bright spots and your blind spots to connect with individuals is really what makes is the difference that makes the difference, right? If you're not continually being coached and continually growing as a, as a sales professional, that is why it'll only take you so far. I mean, you look at LeBron James, does he stop working out during the off season or does Mike Trout stop taking batting practice no they all they do it before every single game yep. they're always sharpening that saw if you will and that's what i think a best in class is i think the best of the best i call them the learners they don't need caesar cabadoy or craig saban or ep in their life to be great they're going to do it any they're listening to these uh, podcasts right now why? Yeah. Because it'll give them that little edge. <laughs> you know why everybody took yeah. steroids in baseball? You know why everybody took them? Because they worked. <laughs> it gave them an edge yeah, because an it, edge. it helped them do better. Yeah. That's why people took them. And I think a lot of companies fail because they they teach how to sell a widget, a product. Here's our latest and greatest, and here's how you sell it. And when when I when I talk to EP, I talk. I talk to EP thinking, how am I going to sell EP whatever, mm -hmm. as opposed to how am I going to connect and build a relationship with EP, understanding what he's focused on, challenged with, working towards. So then once I understand that, once I diagnose, then I can link my solution, whatever that may be, to you specifically. So then the light bulb goes off in your head. Oh, okay. Now I get it. Now I understand how this would help me. You bring up a great point. One of the things that best in class understands that best practices doesn't is the origination point where things come from you go back to Moneyball where do runs come from yeah. or, or even even Herb Brooks in the 1980 Olympics like the legs feed the wolf yes. you gotta know where things come from and I love sure. that scene in Moneyball where Billy Bean the general manager for the Oakland A's is trying to get his scouts who are sitting in this room you know reviewing the list of available players they're trying to get I should say they are trying they are reacting to a situation in the same manner that they have for most of their careers, and it hasn't helped them to rebuild the team fast enough. He's focused on defining the problem once and for all so they can fix it, and he simply asks a question to define the problem. He asks the head scout, he says, what's the problem? And the scout, I think his guy's name was Grady, says, uh, Billy, we all understand what the problem is, and then Billy repeats the question. He says, okay, good, what's the problem? The head scout says, uh, he says, I'm going to lay out. The problem is we have to replace three key players in our lineup. And Billy dismisses the answer and asks again, no, what's the problem? Another scout gives his assessment and says, the problem, same as it's ever been. We got to replace these guys with what we have existing. Billy continues to like press. He asks the same question, directs it to another scout. What's the problem, Barry? The scout answers, we need 38 home runs, 120 RBIs, and 47 doubles to replace. Now, at this point, Billy's aggravated. He sounds off the Jeopardy buzz. Eh. 
wrong. Here's the problem. The problem we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crud and then there's us. It's an unfair game <laughs> and now we've been gutted. We're like organ donors for the rich. Boston taking, is taking our kidneys. Yankees have taken our heart and you guys are just sitting around talking the same old good body nonsense like we're selling jeans, like we're, like we're looking for Fabio. We've got to think <laughs> differently. We're the last dog at the bowl and we see what happens to the run of the litter. He dies. I mean, ultimately it was about really figuring out where the runs come from. And when it comes right. to where deals come from, sales managers following best practices believe that deals come from understanding your product. It's not about, we said this last week, it's not about what's on your shelf. It's about what's on your customer's shelf. And you're not going to get right. the candid conversations that help your customers to divulge what their issues are in getting their stuff off the shelf. So perhaps you might be able to see that you have a solution on your shelf that can accelerate that process or do it with greater level of certainty than anything else that they've ever looked at. That's the issue. Best practices is just dumping a lot of information. Best in class is really transformation. You're getting them ties, to think differently. Yeah, it all ties back to the playbook. I mean, I heard you say that indirectly that you've got to throw away, you got to make changes, you have to, I mean, let's just take it from the top. Uh, Caesar, you said it best when you have to transition from, what was it from information to transformation? Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about martial arts, we've talked about baseball, and I'm gonna tell one more uh, story here that I think ties in really, really well and we're going to move to basketball which you know team is <laughs> what five weeks away which of you guys saw the the last dance you know 10 episodes uh, again giving espn a plug here Did, uh, yep. craig yes it was very good okay so i want you guys to focus on what took place in 1984 and then in 1990 now for those of you that haven't seen the last dance go get it i think you just have to download the app uh, for espn and you can get it it was on the it was on abc too so if you got any one of those gazillion streaming channels called the last dance michael jordan everyone's talked about it. it's pretty much mainstream now but here's the here's the great thing that i can pull out of that and tie into this episode for all the listeners today here you have a transformational change that started there's only one thing that Jerry Krause, in my opinion, did right. And that was getting Michael Jordan on board in 84. Yeah. Everything else was like, he, he took credit where the credit was not due, but whatever. That's a whole nother podcast in itself. So here's the deal. 84, you have Jordan that comes in and he is disrupting what's in place. Like there was, if you will, let's tie it into this episode. There was a best uh, best practices in place. Well, we work out once a day, maybe twice a day. We eat these meals. We get on our bus. We get on the airplane. We show up. We start dressing up and lacing the shoes. We go out. We do some drills. Okay, yeah, just checking the box. Michael Jordan comes in and just wrecks that system because he is something, he, he pushes himself away from the team. He's doing things different. They can see it. And the reality is he shows up on the court. Like he puts up, he doesn't just put numbers up, but he just looks different, walks different, moves different. Now we're going to go forward six years. Michael doesn't have a ring yet. And he's thinking, what is it going to take to get a ring? So what is the, uh, the second best thing? Sorry, Kraus does another thing that I have to give him credit on. He takes out a great coach that they have, a, good, a really solid, good coach, Craig. Who was it? Doug Collins. Doug Collins takes him out. Everybody is like, what? Chicago's going nuts. Yep. What are you thinking? And they bring in this guy that looked like he had really big shoulders and used to play for the Knicks. And yeah. his name is? Bill Jackson. 
Phil Jackson, the Zen master. They bring him in and he pulls Michael to the, I forget which one it is, Craig. Maybe you can help me. It's Maybe it's like uh, episode six or seven. He pulls Michael to the side and says, look, you want to get a ring. We're going to have to do some things different here. Yep. Here comes the transformation. Here it is. It's called the triangle. triangle he introduces offense. the triangle offense. Michael's never done it. Here you have a guy. Now I want all the sales leaders to be thinking right now. Think of your team right now. Think of your best sales individual contributor on that team. Hopefully you've got 10 of them, 20 of them. But for those of you who can just think of one, like, oh my gosh, I need this guy. This guy I can always count on. This gal, they get it done. Uh, he, he, she, they are a rock star. Okay, now think about this for a second. How would you get that person, they're doing everything right, to go up another notch? What would you put in front of them to convince them, hey, you're good, but you haven't reached the excellence yet. Now, it was easy for Phil. You want a ring? Yeah, that's exactly right. You want a ring? Yep. You're gonna have to do two things. You're gonna have to learn this offense. You're gonna have to be an advocate for it, and you have to get the team involved. Now, yep. think about like enterprise sales, right, Caesar? Think about how many people go in to a deal that is an enterprise deal. I don't know anybody in all the jobs that I've had, corporations I've been affiliated with. Craig, do you know any individual contributor that went in there just with his or her engineer or just by himself or herself and closed the deal from front to back by themselves? No. Takes a team, right? Totally. So here you have this massive transformation. You've been doing best practices. You're now going to make a commitment to do a best in class. Haven't done it before. Gonna try it out. Yeah. What's the net result? 1990, 1991, 92, back to back to back. Call it a three-peat championships. Yep. Yep. Michael goes away. Michael comes back. Right. So they had two three-peats in there, 95, 96, 97. And you know, here's what they don't talk about in The Last Dance. And if they do, I just missed it. Phil goes on and he comes over to my backyard with the Lakers and gets 99 double zeros with Shaq and Kobe in 01. And again with Kobe in 08, 09. Do you think his best in class is the best in class for basketball? Yeah. And so, you know, this, I don't know, Craig, you saw that last dance. Does that resonate with what we're talking about today? Without a doubt. I think what Phil did best was he learned, he taught them how to transition from me to we, you know, we, us together, how we can win together, but it's got to be together. And we'll, we'll not only win, but we'll sustain that by evidence of three three-peats. The interesting thing about Phil Jackson, I mean, that was really the transformational piece. He taught Michael, and, and in all fairness to Michael, Michael was willing to listen. This is what's going to take for us to really grow. This is what it's going to take you to win a championship, right? Because you're, Michael, you're scoring. What, what Collins did is he, the all offense went through Michael, and he would score yeah. 50 and 60 points a game. Right. And they'd lose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's it goes back to what Caesar said. It's a mindset. Yeah. And and he bought in. Um, Here, here's the issue with best practices versus best in class, because people might be thinking, well, OK, well, why can't I just apply best in class? Best in class. It's like the, the purpose statement that I have for the book that I'm writing right now, getting a grip on your goals. There's three things you want to get a grip on your goals, get a grip, really achieve what matters most. Three things. Number one, you better be sold out, sold out to the cause. There can be nothing else that you're focused on. Number two, you better be willing to pay the cost. And number three, you need to be willing to take correction and coaching. If you don't have those three elements, I don't care who you are, you're not going to get the thing done. You might be lucky and get it done, but you're not going to be able to do it intentionally or replicate it. So those three things, when it comes to focusing and choosing best in class, sometimes the framework, someone has already done the work, for instance, as we've done to really figure out what are the best in class doing 
to achieve top of their game performance in whatever discipline that you're pursuing. Sometimes it's not and someone actually has to do that research. Like I said, there's been plenty of books written over the last 30, 40 years, but it's generally written by a character who's just saying, hey, just do what I did. How many managers or leaders have we had that right. just come in and say, hey, just do what I did? Well, I can't, yep. I could perhaps do what you did, but I also need your conditions and circumstances to get the same results. And we all know that you can't scale circumstances and conditions. So then you look at best in class, and quite frankly, most people aren't willing to be sold out to it, aren't willing to pay the cost, and aren't willing to get corrected back to the right direction. Look, here's the bottom line, and we're gonna get into this in one of our upcoming webinars, coaching versus commoditizing. Best practices equals being in the comfort zone. Best in class equals being in the growth zone. Best practices relies on a lot of activity, mostly without accomplishment. Think about MJ scoring all those points, game after game after game. Best in class relies on thinking differently, and we talked about that earlier. It's, it, it's about driving a conversion game, and for the past 30 years, best practices training has focused on doing what we call move the middle. If you want your teams to be great, you have to inspire the top, but you also have to set the stage for that to happen. It's easier said than done because while people secretly want to be led, they don't want to follow a system or a person who's not going to get them to the top of their game. Doug Collins got MJ to the top of his team's leaderboard. That's best practices. Phil Jackson, during his tenure at both the Bulls and the Lakers, got his superstars to the mountaintop and inspired in them this idea that top of the leaderboard, top of the NBA wasn't, I repeat, it wasn't top of their game. That's what sets us apart at Playbook for Results. We focus on changing the mindset in order to drive the right behavior that'll set the stage for players to get to the top of their game. All right, look, as we get close to the end of this webinar, I wanna share how Craig and I met. And it starts with a few years after I got into sales. I'd been promoted to sales leadership roles. You know, I'd been a top performer. This particular company did a great job of investing in sales training and bringing in outside people to come and develop and coach our individual contributors and sales leader. And this one guy that came in, he was tan, well-dressed, slim, trim. He was a consultant coach who was in his mid-40s, seemed to have a lot on the ball. I looked at this guy as a early 20-something, and like most 20-somethings, in my mind, a 40-something was tired, overweight, grumpy, <laughs> you know, just, just, just hating life. And this guy comes in, he, I, you know, he gives his life story, talks about his wife, his kids. He's got like a great relationship. He just looks good, well put together. So that's the guy I wanted to be. And so I walked up to him afterwards and after training session, introduced myself and I let him know that I wanted to do what he was doing. I wanted to become a sales coach or a leadership coach. So he told me that, you know, I had the results because he knew. He said, I had the results to be a great player and that it appeared that I was also having just been recently promoted, that I was on my way to having some level of success as a sales leader. But I really needed to learn if I wanted to be a sales coach how to impart knowledge if I was going to be great at being a coach. He also said I needed to be okay with pursuing a career that wasn't as financially rewarding as sales was. Anyway, after some you know hemming and hawing and looking at what the blueprint looked like, I quit my job and started to look for a job in a completely different industry and in a role I had never done. And, and thank goodness I was decent at sales because I actually convinced someone to hire me at the fourth largest telecom company at the time. And I specifically pursued telecom because the internet was blowing up at that particular point. And I wanted to get into it because I loved the technology. Anyway, someone, about 18 months in, someone who had watched me train and I had to do it differently because I wasn't your typical trainer. I was a sales guy that became a trainer, not a trainer that was trying to become a salesperson. And that's just 
generally the best practice. That's how things were done. You look at people that never sold before or hadn't sold successfully and you put them into a training role. And then you get some type of best practice approach and you get them to try to teach all of the other salespeople. And so I was coming at it from a standpoint of I had sold before, I'd actually led before. This person called me up after she'd left this company and said, I wanna hire you to help me develop the sales training program. We're gonna do things completely different. We don't wanna follow best practices. We wanna do best in class. This company went on to become CenturyLink and that's where Craig and I met. And it was based on this whole idea that back then, best practices, you hire people that weren't necessarily good at sales to do your sales training, which makes no sense, but that was the best practice, right? Yeah. And so Craig and I met, ironically enough, he came up to me after I trained him, we had just acquired his company, and said, hey, I wanna do what you're doing. Craig, you wanna <laughs> go from, from there? Yeah, so uh, man, I, I have a, you know, a background in psychology and methodologies, and I'm all into the, the mind and how it works and stuff like that, and I saw Caesar do it, and I'm like, man, I totally wanna do that. Like that is, I'm meant to, I'm put on this earth to do that. And, um, and it wasn't your traditional so sales training, right? No, it wasn't. It was it was inspiring. It was you know it wasn't just power death by PowerPoint. It was yeah, really inspiring and and got that's what attracted you, right? Absolutely, it got me to and yeah. it, kind, it kind of aligned with my thinking because I've always visioned myself as somebody who thinks kind of outside the box. And and what Caesar was demonstrating is wow, I can I can actually do this for a living. So I hired so him right away. Sure I, was, I hired him right away. They, no. No, I said, no, hey, what no, are your numbers no. like? So you, 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 you can tell this story. You love, you love telling this, so go ahead. <laughs> so I said, okay, you, you, you want to do what I do. Let's, let's kind of put you through the gauntlet that I had to go through. What are your numbers, right? What's your performance like? And he was at 120% of plan, respectable. I think most sales leaders would say, hey, that's great. And I said, well, eh, not good enough. Look, if you're going to have credibility in, top of, in, in front of top performers, and this is a little plug here for Playbook for Results and the, the way that we approach things. This is best in class versus is best practices. We're not we're not about moving the mediocre middle. We're about investing in the top. And so if you're going to invest in the top, you better make sure you have people at the front that have credibility, that have the ability to come in and command some respect because of the fact that they've actually performed this role and actually know how to impart that knowledge, right? So I said, you're at 120% of plan, you gotta do better because there's people that are significantly higher than you. Get higher than them and then we can talk about you coming on board. The other part of it was I wanted to see if he was actually willing to leave money on the table. That would prove whether or not he had a passion for this. We could clearly see that he was prioritizing this. We could clearly see he had a proficiency for this, but did he really have the passion? Enough to drop high compensation in one role to go to another one where he's coaching people that are gonna be those same people, achieving high levels of compensation. And I didn't hear from him nine or 10 months later, I actually heard from his manager. His manager came to me and said, Craig wants to come work for your organization and I think it's a bad idea because he's at like 400% of plan, I need him. I said, well, uh, you may need him, but this is what he wants. Uh, and now it's come, <laughs> become an immediate need and, and immediate needs right, are the things that people act on. It may have been an emotional one about nine, 10 months ago, but clearly he's proven that this is what he needs to do. It's in his DNA. And so uh, I said, you're either gonna have him do this role or you're gonna lose him to a competitor. What would yep. you rather have? He's like, yeah, you're right. I said, here's the other point. Best practices says that you get someone who's never carried a bag successfully to train your salespeople. Best in class says you get people that have been really successful to train your salespeople. Who would you rather have? And- No brainer. 
And here's no the brainer. thing, and it, you know, it, it's a tough decision. It's still a tough decision. Yeah. You you got to be sold out to that cause. And fortunately, yep. and he and I are still in contact. I mean, I spoke to, to Craig's boss, uh, former boss, no less than two weeks ago. I mean, this is 20 years ago when we were all, yeah. you know, kids doing this. Yeah, he still holds the same, same mentality, same attitude. We were all sold out to that notion. Craig, any regrets? <laughs> Uh, no, man, it's, it's, it's maybe only awesome. after the first few weeks that I put you on the road, right? Yeah. 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 So he yeah. put me on the road and, uh, it was interesting. I was like in four cities in four different days and, <laughs> you know, traveling and suitcase and it's crazy. Learned a lot though. I really, you know, and, and it really aligned with my, my passion. It was, I was passionate. It actually was 750% of quota. Not oh, I'm sorry. Not 400, <laughs> 750% of quota. Um, I mean, can you imagine now. leaving yeah, that on short. the table? Like clearly the guy just wanted to do this and 20 years later, still doing it and still making an impact in a best in class That's way. Awesome. So hey, great. Just to build on that real quick, it's real interesting, you know, the best, best, in, best in class. It's it's so true because when I'm in front of a room or I'm on, you know, I'm on a virtual setting or something and, and I'm facilitating some information or something like that, it's like you really, they get bought in because salespeople can smell it when you're just, oh, somebody read the book. Right. Yeah. Like I tell them right off the bat, hey man, I I, I I I do this stuff. Like I'm not just telling you this because I read the book or read the powerpoints. You know, I do this stuff. Like, and it's great when you have a president of an organization or an executive, and they'll stand up. Hey, Craig, that's awesome. Tell them when you did this, or tell them how you did that. You get automatic buy-in, man. It's like EF Hutton, man. Everybody listens because yeah. you just get that credibility, and it's not faking it. Like, like I, I'm imparting this because not only do I do it, but I really, truly believe in it. If you really do this stuff, you will transform. You will get better. Yeah, yeah you've walked, well. I mean, look, you've walked the walk. You're not just a yeah. you're not, not a puppet up there in front of people saying, ah, "I read the book," and hey, philosophy. Hey, I got to tie in second metrics, man. I, I, I hinted it, I teased it at the front end. Leave us with some okay. psychometrics, man. Give me something good. Don't take me down the 30-minute, like, blow my head off. Just give me something good. What is psychometrics? So psychometrics is a study of how people think, right? So that could be how you how you think about a certain thing. So not necessarily what you think, but how you think. So what I do is I enable and what I do is I enable and inspire performance by teaching people how they themselves are wired. We use some technology called Luminal Learning. Luminal Learning is a company based in the UK. They've been around for about 10 years. And they, they give us profiles on personality preferences. They call them qualities and traits. They measure 24 of them. And they take this assessment and the assessment shares with them on a, on a sliding scale. What are their bright spots? What are the things that they do naturally well? And it also identifies some blind spots. Now, I'm not saying strengths and weaknesses. I'm saying bright spots and blind spots. Right. I can give you a quick analogy. It's similar to hand dominance. Hand dominance. Most people are right or left-handed. So there's some people that do both, but most people are one or the other. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we share with them things that they do really, really well naturally, like your right hand if you're right-handed. We also share with them things that they might do maybe not as comfortably as an example, like your left hand if you're right-handed. Then what we is we, we share with people how do they respond to stress because interesting I've been doing it for like 10 years now and people respond to 
stress or they use a nice fancy word called overextension mm -hmm. they respond to people respond very differently some people that are under stress they do more of what they're naturally good at so if you're the typical driver charger type some people like that that when they're under stress they just drive even harder they push even harder interesting though some people that are under stress that might have that preference when they're under stress they flip and they can actually become passive hmm. so it's an so the, the the correlation or the coaching is hey this is how you tend to behave and we give them examples and they come up with their own examples and it, it's a really uh, eye-opening experience for many people and then that we close it out with we with the concept and actually my favorite concept of the whole program is called speed reading so speed reading is how do you connect with other human beings that don't think the way that you think the way that you think so what we do is we teach them uh, a set of skills, approaches, and techniques to notice how people are thinking and then adjust your approach to their way of thinking. It's all about that alignment piece. Instead of selling a product one size fits all, it's say, how do we, all human beings don't fit, fit the bill either. Everybody's right. different. So how do you pick up on these tips and tricks and tendencies of people and then notice them and then more importantly, adjust your approach. It, it makes you a more consultative professional. It makes you a better leader because yep. you know on your team, you're gonna have all different kinds of people. So um, one of the things we do when we, we work with uh, teams is we, we work with the management or the executive level leadership as well as mid-level management. We said, hey, how are, how are your hiring practices? Are you just hiring a bunch of mini-me's? You know, are they all EPs and all Caesars and all Craigs, you know? little versions, or is there a diverse group, a, a diverse uh, thinking, if you will, that actually will enhance the team and help the team and, and the culture move forward? Especially in today's day and age, you know, valuing diversity is even more important than it ever was just in the last few months. Yeah. So, you know, the, the need for this is, it, you know, my phone's ringing off the hook because so many people want to get more involved in this stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, and everything you just produced there for the listeners, uh, Craig, is just a great example of what it takes to incorporate something into a best-in-class system, which is yeah, obviously why you still obviously continue, continue to be at the top of your game. And speaking about uh, being at the top, we're actually at the top of the hour, and we need to uh, wrap this one up. So, you know, I'm going to say this, Caesar. This is great, man. We, we got to bring Craig back on. Craig, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks we for really having enjoyed me. enjoyed it. Yeah. Caesar, I say we bring him back on for another episode down the road. What do you think? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, we got 90 seconds left on the playcock, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up for today. We hope you all enjoyed the discussion today and were able to get a grip on what Caesar and I and also Craig, our guests, had to share out with everybody today. Getting a grip on growing your business. That's what it's all about. Hopefully you guys will tune into more episodes here for our podcast. Go ahead and take a look at uh, Playbooks for Results. That's pb4r.com. That's P as in play, B as in books, the number four, R as in results.com for more information. This is where you're going to find an archive of videos, podcasts, and other tools to help you stay on the top of your game. Look for us also on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please, please do us a favor, subscribe, rate, and review. All good things must come to an end, and that includes our show for today. Thank you so much for lending us your ears right here on Getting a Grip on Selling. My name is EP, reminding you all, don't just do it, crush it. Thanks for listening to the Playbook for Results podcast. For more information on virtual content and coaching designed to grow your business, please visit the Playbook for Results website at pb4r.com. You can follow Playbook for Results on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook just by searching for Playbook for Results 
or hashtag PB4R. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Getting a Grip on Growing Your Business with your Playbook for Results coaches, your virtual coaching and value creation specialists.